You're listening to The Path Forward Dayton, a Dayton Daily News podcast where we discuss the most pressing issues facing our region and seek solutions. I'm your host, Dayton Daily News Community Impact Editor, Nick Herkman. Today's podcast is a recording of the community conversation we held via Zoom on Wednesday, March 16th, on the topic of how COVID has affected the development of children. My name is Nick Herkman. I'm the Community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News. Joining me today to co-host is Josh Swigert. I'll let him introduce himself real quick. Yeah, I'm Josh Swigert, an investigative reporter with the Dayton Daily News. Happy to be here, and uh, this is an important topic. Thank you, Josh. Uh, the community conversations are a, path, are a part of the Path Forward initiative that address certain issues in our community that are vitally important and uh, worthy of discussion. So we invite every month a, a series of panelists to talk to uh, the issues that we're concerned about. So the panelists joining us this month this month are, are Dr. Catherine Lambis, if you don't mind giving a quick introduction. Yeah, hi, I'm Dr. Catherine Lambis. Um, I work with Community Health Centers of Greater Dayton as a primary care physician. Um, I practice internal medicine and pediatrics. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lambis. Uh, David Taylor, do you mind going? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Dave Taylor. I am the superintendent and CEO of the Dayton Early College Academy. We're a network of charter schools here in the city of Dayton. Thank you for being here, Dave. Uh, Shannon Cox, do you mind going? Happy to be. Happy to be here and thanks for having me. I'm Shannon Cox. I'm the superintendent of the Montgomery County Educational Service Center and we work with all of the schools and districts here in Montgomery County and really across the region. Thanks for having us. Happy to have you here, Shannon. And Robin Lightcap, do you mind going? Hi, my name is Robin Lightcap and I am the executive director of Preschool Promise. And our focus is on working with young children prenatal to age five and making sure children have experiences to get ready for kindergarten. Thank you, Robin, and thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I'd like to also mention for the audience that you are able to and encouraged to uh, submit questions to our panelists. So if you have anything that you'd like to know uh, from the expertise uh, offered right here, please leave a comment on Facebook during the stream. We, our digital specialists will address that and pass that along to us and we'll try to work that into the program. So without further ado, I'd like to jump into some of the questions and I'm gonna start with Shannon Cox. If you don't mind, um, we, we've been looking at some of the, the recent reports and research. About a third of children in the youngest grades are missing reading benchmarks up significantly from before the pandemic, according to recent studies. Uh, one study found that early reading skills were at a 20 year low this fall. Is this in line with what local educators are witnessing and what you see with the ESC? Um, yes, it is actually across the nation. We're actually seeing this. Um, one of the things, though, that I think makes significant difference is that our earliest learners haven't had any muscle memory of what school should be like or how learning is supposed to cycle through. And so um, what we're seeing is that while the gaps are we see learning loss gaps across the continuum of students, our earliest learners who haven't had those experiences before, we're just seeing them at a, at a wider gap. And so it is something that we are very, very keenly aware of. We know literacy and communication is vital to all subject matters. Um, but we also know that those are the kids that we actually probably can catch up the most quickly. Um, so there will be a lot of time 
resources and dedication very intentionally placed at those early levels to ensure that we can close that gap more readily. And following up on that, so we did a recent story looking at a lot of these issues and I talked to child development experts and they said that some issues affected broadly across the board, the thriving gap, but sadly others were more pronounced in disadvantaged communities and the same communities where we see other disparate impacts. Um, black and Hispanic children, those from low-income families, those with disabilities, or who are, those who aren't fluent in English are falling the furthest behind. And I wanted to ask Robin Lightcap if you could talk to what are we doing as a region, what can we do to address those disparities for some of those who are the most adversely impacted? This is a really important question because we all have seen the stats about how our um, communities have been disproportionately impacted by this. And I think when, you know, of course, my area is focusing on early learning, and we saw in our own data that our black and brown children were attending and participating in preschools at a lower rate during the pandemic than some of our other um, communities, our white communities. And so some of the things we're looking at um, right now, we actually applied Ohio Department of Education has a grant out to address some of these gaps that Shannon articulated. And we applied to run a preschool program focused on black boys in Trotwood. And so that's an example of something that's very targeted to support our black boys who we often know are not prioritized well in our education system for lots of reasons. And pandemic certainly you know, brings that to light. I think we all have said this over the years that the pandemic just really shines a light on inequities in our system that were there long before COVID. And it just puts hopefully some lights of fire under all of us to do some things differently to serve our children and our students. Did Dave or Shannon want to chime in too? I think this is a pretty key topic and we wanted to see if there was, you know, trying to get ahead of some of the, these inequities as Robin pointed out existed well, be, well before the pandemic but were exacerbated by it. Um, is DECA or, or um, the ESC, Montgomery County's ESC, are there, are there strategies or initiatives in place to kind of address that? Yeah, I think, uh, I'll, I'll go first, Shannon. Um, I, I think, um, you know, this is this is I really think the essential question. This is something that we we know if um, if we don't address these gaps before our, our youngsters hit fourth grade, then you know we may never get them caught up. So there's a lot of urgency um, across the board uh, at our school, and I know in schools across our region to to address these issues. And there are a number of very practical things that we can do. Um, some of those options include um, you know doing things like high dosage tutoring. Uh, where we're offering like a far more, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one or small group instruction for students uh, around phonics instruction, how to help kids learn, um, not necessarily from, from directly from a teacher, maybe somebody who's personally trained uh, to, to do this well, uh, to improve their practice. Uh, we have a number of schools who are, are we're looking at radically reducing class size so they can actually get to students to, to, to spend more one-on-one -on -one time with them. Uh, we're, we have a lot of schools who are, you know, as Robin mentioned, you know, extending the school day, uh, look, you know, and it may not be the actual school itself. There's community partners that are, who are looking to do this. There are a number of things that we can do. Uh, I know we'll probably talk about this later, but one of the major constraints is, is, is workforce. Uh, it's finding people who are uh, qualified to do this work and also have the bandwidth to do it. Uh, these, these last few years have been extraordinarily challenging for educators, and many of them, even the, the appeal of additional funding isn't enough to get, you know, additional uh, compensation isn't enough to get them because they're, they're, they're burnt out and they need, they need time to rest. 
And the only thing that I would add to that from an education lens is that it's not just the students. These barriers affect the entire family. And what we know is that learning loss will be the least of our worries if we don't wrap around families. Um, and the families who are already living in our communities that had the biggest challenges or the biggest barriers or students who are living on the fringes of our communities in the first place, um, they obviously felt the impact in a negative way of the pandemic more so than, than others. I think it's also important to realize and remember that as a community, uh, the pandemic was not the only tragedy and trauma that we have been faced over the last several years. We are still facing you know, job loss, unemployment uh, has toggled up and down since the re recession. We have uh, mental health needs that have just skyrocketed. We uh, obviously have faced the opioid pandemic or pandemic. <laughs> Sorry, I hope we never have another pandemic, but the opioid epidemic. Um, so we're not just talking about just COVID. We're not talking about just the pandemic and we're not talking about just the students. And we all know in brain development that we are never gonna be able to teach kids what they need, whether it's catching them up, accelerating them or enriching them, if we don't have that whole human being taken care of. And I mean, a lot of these targeted efforts, are, these, are there resources for these things? I'm curious. Uh, the schools and the child care centers where you guys are getting, did you have the resources and, and, and where, where does that come from? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tag in first on this one. So there obviously is an influx of funds, right? The federal government has flooded states with certain funds and they've given us very targeted areas that we should be using them. And then the states had to respond at a state level. And then those monies obviously flow down and, and we can respond at a local level not just in the education system. You know, if I think back to the first round of CARES dollars that came through, the education sector received $5 million just in this county to make certain that every student had a device, that we had Wi-Fi. You know, so there have been very targeted efforts. We're now at the stage, though, as Robin mentioned before, that we can kind of make some discernment decisions and kind of categorize where should we be spending this money? Do we need to provide supplemental income for teachers and or tutors? Dave hits a very, a very good point. I know, I know we're going to get to it, but we have a human capital issue, and it doesn't matter how many resources you stick into the community. If there aren't people to carry out the task, we're still going to be um, dealing with that barrier as well. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in next. Uh, I think there's, there's no shortage of um, think tanks that are providing uh, really good ideas of what to do and how to do it. Um, you know, either, you know, last year we were inundated, uh, you know, it felt like daily with, you know, this is the new thing, it's the new thing you should try. Uh, and the reality is so much of what needs to happen is just good old fashioned teaching um, is, you know, community building, uh, you know, getting kids in school on time, keeping them there all day, building, building connections and community within that school and then really strong teaching. And I think, you know, we can sometimes um, stray away from that uh, and really be drawn to the extras. Uh, when the reality is we need to center in what teachers do really well, which is educate kids in the classroom. Uh, so I, I wanted to make sure we kind of always come back to that. Um, you know, and, and the, the resources are there right now, Shannon, I think uh, pointed it out well. Typically schools are scrounging for how are we gonna be able to fund this? Right now we can fund a number of the initiatives that we have going. I will point out that there's, there's a cliff coming. And you know, this is not going to be a short-term uh, problem. I think we're gonna be working through some of these issues and continuing to, to need extra support for our students for many years to come. And that's something that I know we're all constantly thinking of, okay, so in a year or two or three, when those funds have dried up, how are we gonna kind of uh, scale back what we're doing or how are we gonna continue to make sure that our kids get what they need 
so that they don't fall behind and uh, once those funds dry up. Thank you, Dave. And there's a there's a lot of topics here, and we will get to the workforce uh, question in just a moment. I wanted to go to Catherine Lambris real quick to talk about uh, just because around vaccination and still, you know, the continued need for vaccination and reaching minority and low income neighborhoods and zip codes. We've done a lot of uh, stories and reporting specifically around how to get over some of those obstacles and and moving forward. You know, initially getting people vaccinated, but you know, looking at boosters and things like that. How do or are you familiar with any initiatives in the area that have been successful in targeting some of those low-income and minority uh, zip codes uh, to get them vaccinated and boosted? I think you're still muted. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't unmuting for me. I apologize. Um, but yeah, so uh, most recently, I know public health is doing another big push. A lot of the libraries locally are doing walk-in vaccination clinics for uh, five years and up. I believe they're offering um, monetary gift cards again um, to continue this push because um, I'm really hopeful. I'm really excited that the numbers are going down, but we've seen the numbers go down before uh, and before another wave came. And so we're always hoping that this is the last, the last uh, downfall and that that would be good. Um, but we're still going to have some hot spots. We talk about this entering an endemic phase as opposed to a pandemic phase. And that's where, you know, there's not a raging big fire, but there's little fires that pop up with little outbreaks here and there, whether they're in our schools and our workplaces. Um, we had a staff member um, recently just last week with COVID. We, we, so these cases are still happening. Um, vaccination is just as important as ever. Um, as I talk to parents um, and other and adult patients about this, uh, everybody says, well, most people don't get too sick from it, but I cannot predict who will get sick and who will not get bad sick with this, regardless of your health history. We know that health problems increase your risk of more severe disease, um, but that's not a perfect indicator either. Um, so, you know, every protection you can give your, yourself or your child um, against this from getting long COVID symptoms, which can last up to 12 weeks, from getting post-COVID uh, symptoms that can last several months uh, to some patients um, have been dealing with them for over a year of chronic fatigue, headaches, stomach upsets, memory, uh, foggy thinking. Uh, those have been ongoing for many patients still, and it's not perfectly understood. We're still trying to figure out why. Uh, they're having these ongoing symptoms. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I'm going to give my child and both of my children have had their COVID vaccines and boosters if eligible, um, every protection they can, because, you know, when you get in that COVID car accident, um, you don't know whether it's going to be a minor fender bender and everybody's okay, even if they weren't wearing their seatbelt, but I'm not willing to take that chance. I'm going to put their seatbelt on every time and that's their COVID shot. That's my COVID shot. Um, so that if it comes to our house, comes to our family, which it has done, um, uh, we're going to have the most protection to um, evade severe disease or severe illness. I think that's Following a great analogy. Up. I think that's that's good. So booster up, Ohio. Following up on that, Dr. Lambus, I, I, could you talk about some of the long-term consequences for kids, both those who've had COVID, and you mentioned some of the long COVID stuff, but potential years-long consequences for kids who've had it, but also those who haven't had it and because of other ancillary impacts and lifestyle changes, what sort of long-term impacts we might be seeing. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the similar long COVID, post-COVID problems are the same 
fairly similar for kids as adults. We're having a lot of concentration problems, sometimes dizziness, fatigue, um, sometimes shortness of breath can last a long time. Uh, kids who have had this um, uh, inflammatory syndrome in kids um, are following up with cardiologists and kidney specialists if they have had uh, damage to blood vessels around their heart or their kidneys. Um, and we're not sure how long this will last. I mean, kids, we've only been two years into the pandemic. So further down the line, it's, it's a matter of time and, and, and watching and seeing. Um, the social aspects we've, we've uh, touched on quite a bit with the schooling. Um, as a physician, we saw well checks and root, other routine immunizations drop off significantly uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And they're just starting to get back in for routine care. Um, especially, you know, the little ones, we were, we were making a big effort to say, no, no, we're still seeing kids. We need to get their shots on time, but people were not scheduling. Um, I know how hard it is with parents working multiple jobs, having childcare issues, uh, trying to keep them in school. Uh, healthcare ends up behind all of that because they've got to put food on the table and they've got to maybe try to get them to school. Um, my husband and I were lucky, are lucky enough to be um, you know, educated and flexible with our schedules that once the pandemic hit and schools shut down, we, we mixed our schedules up to be home with the kids to help them learn at home. But uh, they, that, was, <laughs> that was an adventure um, that I don't care to repeat. And I, I know that for any other families that have much more complicated uh, issues going on with other childcare, having to work, not having that flexibility, uh, it, it was a tremendous obstacle. And again, it highlights what was already there long before the pandemic, that they don't have access to healthcare. They don't have transportation to get kids to school. They have to work multiple jobs just to make, uh, you know, a living uh, wage to have a, you know, reasonable um, uh, standard of living for their families. Thank you, Dr. Lambus. Um, I'm going to move on now to uh, what we have, we've hinted at a little bit of some of the workforce issues, and it's tied into what's been reported as the great resignation. Um, schools nationally have reported vacancies, core, core teaching jobs, uh, and the, the largest category and causes for that uh, seems to be uh, around resignation and not necessarily retirement or people being pushed to early retirement. Um, how has that played out locally? And is there a plan to get ahead of it through our different organizations around here? So I'm gonna start that with Dave Taylor, um, if you don't mind answering that. And of course, I, that even applies to Dr. Lambus in healthcare as well. So everyone's welcome to chime in. Yeah, I, I think most of us, when we think about teaching, we think, it in, we think of it in terms of year long cycles, right? You take a job, you, you, know, you work that job for the year, maybe you look for another job you know, and begin the next school year. And I think what we've seen more this year in a variety of settings um, is a lot of teachers deciding in the middle of the year, like I'm just not gonna continue anymore. This is not for me. Um, and not just first year teachers that I, you know, I've talked with friends in other districts, you know, who've moved across new states and has said, I'm not going back for the second semester this year. Um, and it's, um, it is incredibly difficult for schools to find an adequate replacement in the middle of the year. 
And so typically what you're seeing is people scramble to find ways to, to get those uh, to cover. And, and, you know, this is not me bashing teachers. I, I think if we're coming at this and looking at what the job has been, it's not what people signed up for. Uh, you know, when, when, when you have no subs in the building and you're asked to cover classes when, when your plan period or, or classrooms are split up and you're covering extra duties, um, there's a lot of things there that just make the job much more difficult than it previously had been. So a lot of folks will look at it and say, what I used to do before the pandemic is not what I'm doing now, and I cannot sustain this. And so it's just made the job much more difficult. So I, um, I, I think uh, I'm sure Shannon will talk about, you know, the leadership changes we're, we're having. We have a lot of change at the leadership level uh, happening uh, in, nationally, but uh, specifically here in Montgomery County. Um, but I, I think we're also looking at a number of folks who have been in the industry who are saying, I'll finish the year, but I'm either going to change districts or I'm going to leave the industry altogether. And I, I'll just say this, I, it's worth noting for a lot of people, they can get a job that can pay just as much or more, and they can work remotely. Uh, so that you know they can find a job where it isn't as you know as taxing. Um, we would argue in response, it is nowhere near as rewarding, right? Like when you get to work with kids, you're doing you're doing the best work there is to do. But uh, you know that isn't necessarily hold true for everyone. So uh, I haven't gotten to like what solutions are. I, I think if you're if you're asking that question, um, you know the, the first thing is we have to begin thinking differently about our pipelines. Uh, about what you know, who is going to become a teacher, and what training looks like for teachers, and does our current model work? I think if we're looking pre-pandemic, we're seeing significant drops in enrollment and teacher ed programs, uh, and so we have to begin thinking differently about how do we get educators ramped up quickly into the profession so they can be successful. And a lot of schools are thinking that way already, um, and we don't have to go all the way into the details on that. But I think it's a, we have, we have a big time pipeline issue uh, in, in our country, and schools have to think non-traditionally to make make that uh, make that. That, that issue, uh, uh, one that we can live with moving forward. I'd be happy to jump in next. I could talk about this for hours. So somebody may need to like cut me off at, at some point. I will not be offended. Um, Dave is absolutely right. And uh, on multiple levels, we have got to come at this from a workforce issue not a licensure issue, because it's not just about the certificated staff. Uh, we are short on bus drivers. Bus drivers can, and we're competing with Amazon and FedEx and, you know, similar role-alike type jobs. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think maybe delivering boxes may, to Dave's point, may be less stress than delivering children to and from school. But the relationship with those kids, I promise you, will be a much more rewarding job than the boxes and the occasional dog you may have to throw a treat to to be able to safely get the box to the porch right so we're just talking about a different quality of job and it really there's no wrong answer at this point people are having to make very important decisions about their own um sort of soul searching moments right just because you can do this should i be doing it do i want to do it anymore and the last two years has, has just been taxing. Uh, public education has really kind of been under attack at, at different levels for a job that again is, is super rewarding. And that goes from the earliest learners all the way up really into the collegiate um, you know, sector. So we are lucky enough that we have um, brought our higher ed institutions, both our community college, Sinclair, um, as well as public and private two and, and four years um, 
to the table. We have our HBCU that's at the table as well, working together on something called I Educate Montgomery County. And we're looking at that as a sort of derivative of the I Educate Ohio initiative that the State Department of Education in conjunction with the Ohio Department of Higher Education has put out to really help look at this, not just from a teacher shortage today perspective, but that pipeline, that workforce issue. How do we ensure that we have more students who have the aptitude to be service providers like teachers, like bus drivers, like cafeteria workers? How do we get them into the profession? And, and if it requires the college degree, how do we ensure we get them into the college degree, but also get them to the attainment of the college degree that allows them to circle back and actually give back to the community? So because all of those, all of those benchmarks, all of those pinpoints can also be pain points. Um, and I, will, I would be remiss if I didn't say they're traditionally pain points for students, both at the collegiate level and the, the um, K-12 level, who are of marginalized populations. Uh, again, when life is tough, it is really, really tough. And so we have taken concerted efforts to make certain that we can get people into the pipeline, but also get them through the pipeline so that they can turn around and our community can actually benefit from, from, their, um, from their journey. Um, as far as leadership goes, there are 16 public school superintendents in Montgomery County. At this given day, today, there are four that have either just been hired or open. And I'm expecting a couple more before the end of the year. Um, last year in the state of Ohio, there were 51 public school superintendents who retired, who just left the profession. We are clearly on track to triple that this year. And so I think we're going to see sort of phases. I think we're going to see the retirement phase. So resignation for purposes of retirement, we're just done. And they're not done. They may go do something else, but it'll be part time. Then we're going to see the shifting, right? We're going to see what Dave talked about, like people just staying in the profession for whatever reason that is but just changing. They recognize the grass is not greener. They just need a different shade of green at this point to be able to fulfill their own bucket and keep doing what they want to be doing, which is working in our public education system. And then we're gonna see the domino effect. That'll be the third stage. And we're gonna, we're gonna see this hiring season go into probably September, um, maybe even October, trying to make certain that we fill those last positions and unfortunately, we may not have the human capital that we need to be able to do that. So we are going to have to think differently. We are going to have to absolutely think differently about how we do things. And, and I want to remind people, we learned a lot of good things through this pandemic as well. While we understand that best practice is having kids in the classrooms with the teachers, it doesn't mean that digitally enhanced curriculum or digitally enhanced courses can't be used to maximize the teachers that we do have. And so we are going to have to think bells ringing and people moving and pods of students moving from one place to the other. We're probably beyond that. We need to really actually enter the 21st century and think about how we can um, really be the architects of what education should look like in the future. And we got to do that right now in order for it to be effective. I'm curious, are there opportunities for like mid-career or late-career professionals who may be thinking the great resignation because they wanted something more fulfilling? Is there a pipeline to get them into classrooms for, as Dave pointed out, is an extremely important job that, that, that has extreme like potential for, for fulfillment? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one very tactile example. Um, we had a couple of school counselors who had retired, and they retired uh, several years ago. They knew 
that their passion, the reason they were school counselors in the first place is because they wanted to be that, that person, that relationship person to kids. They said, put me in coach. <laughs> now we don't want to work full time. So they actually paired up and they split the job, but there are examples like that all across the state and all across the nation. And it's beautiful. It's working out beautifully. So I can add to this as well. I think we've, I think Dave and Shannon have addressed the public school side of this. The childcare side of this is a whole nother conversation when we talk about workforce shortages. So I, all of us, I'm sure on the call would advocate that educators need to be paid better, right? As a society, we don't, we don't fundamentally value educators in the way that we should. Our money speaks on what we value. With childcare workers, it's even more pathetic. Um, we, when we talk about struggling to get childcare teachers for the most important years of brain development in infancy and in toddler years and preschool years, we just did a survey recently with our childcare sites. The lead teacher on average made less than $15 an hour. The assistant teacher on average made less than $12 an hour. That is pathetic. And that is a statement of how we're valuing the people who are teaching our kids. And unfortunately, a lot of our parents don't even know how much their childcare teachers make. But all the, you know, we all have seen the signs advertised for all different kinds of roles that don't have the demands that our early childhood teachers are facing. You know, this is a job that you have no flexibility, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. when parents are at work. Uh, you have a classroom. You know, anytime we say that, oh, do you really need a degree for early childhood teachers, I would invite anyone to come in and spend a day with a classroom of 12 two-year-olds. And I mean, we, those of us who are parents, we know how hard it was working with one or two or even three toddlers or infants. Imagine a whole classroom. And when we're dealing with the challenges of the pandemic that really disrupt stability and introduce a lot of stress for our young children, then we see even more behavior challenges that our children might exhibit because of that toxic stress in the environment all around them and parents being torn in so many directions. So we have to do something differently about how we value our teachers across the entire continuum, like Shannon said, from the very beginning and in infancy all the way up to the college um, level. And I just, I feel like we're really at a critical point in our country on whether or not we're gonna do something differently because we will, not have, we will not have high quality programs and high quality teaching if we don't shift it. We should be looking for our very best and smartest and brightest students to go into teaching. And right now that isn't how it's working. Yeah, I agree, Robin, um, strongly that uh, as childcare, we, we tend to spend the least amount of money on our youngest um, who are in their, you know, most critical time of brain development and social development, and we spend the least on our oldest in this uh, in this country. Um, and we need to try and find ways to change that to encourage people uh, to get degrees. Early childhood education is very important. I had lots of parents delaying the start of preschool or kindergarten, first grade, uh, because of the pandemic, um, both because they felt that doing it online with the child was um, difficult for them, whether it's because they didn't have internet or they just didn't have the technology or the, or the level of education themselves to help the child use it, uh, or they just didn't have other childcare either. And they had to go to work 
and then they had an older child that had to stay with the younger child so they they didn't go to school uh it was a, just a big spiral um and cascade of problems for for kids from all ages from young to high school who were missing out uh so i have you know now i have six seven year olds who are just starting kindergarten um they're way behind uh and we have to figure out how to get them get them caught up but we undervalue our educators severely and money money speaks to that I also would just add, since we talked about the pipeline, we have been, we have one of our team members, James Cosby, has done a tremendous job building a pathway. We have about 70 teachers that he's working with on earning a degree and a credential in early childhood. These are teachers who are working full-time in very underpaid jobs, and we're helping them get a degree. He also has a cohort of about 50 teachers. He's tapping, helping to pass that OEA test for the teacher licensing pathway. Um, and those kinds of programs are really important and they have to go beyond just scholarships. It's not just about scholarships. It's about how can we change our work schedules, our work environments to make it so that it's easier for people to get degrees. How do we support people who are pursuing this profession in really different ways? Um, so like I think you asked Josh about second career kind of moves, that's really critical. We have to think about people who might be out there and something that's unfulfilling and how do we elevate this as a really esteemed profession in our world? Because it is. I will just add very quickly that the program that she's talking about, the mentorship, that's part of our I Educate Montgomery County initiative. But just recently, we had two individuals pass the test. They had tried numerous times beforehand. So it's two of 50. It's a good, it's not enough, but it's a good start. And we're so proud of that work that's being done. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick break so far to reintroduce the program to people that might have just tuned in. So thank you for joining us. If you're listening on Facebook right now, uh, you are listening to a community conversation that focuses on how COVID and the COVID generation has affected our children. And so we're joined today with panelists with uh, deep expertise in the field of education and healthcare. I want to let I just recognize real quick that Shannon Cox, the superintendent of the Montgomery County ASC, is joining us. We also have Dr. Catherine Lambus, who is a local pediatrician with the Community Health Centers of Greater Dayton. Uh, we have Robin Lightcap, who is the executive director of the Preschool Promise. And we have Dave Taylor, the superintendent of DECA. Uh, so I just wanted to remind folks again, too, if you're, if you're listening along, watching along, you are encouraged to submit questions if you're a parent with young children or uh, children of any age and concerned about the long-term effects of COVID and what's gonna happen in the future, uh, please uh, leave a comment in the Facebook feed. We'd be happy to address those as they come in. So thank you again for listening and we're gonna jump back into the questions. Um, I have a question here uh, that it's kind of based on something we talked about, you know, just concern around parents and, and, and de developmental progress. In February, the CDC released updated guidelines that kind of lowered expectations of childhood development milestones. Um, and I believe they were draft guidelines, so I'm not exactly sure if they have been officially passed, but it now says that children should learn 50 words by 30 months of age, and that guidance kind of clashes with information. I believe the American Speech Language Hearing Association uh, had an issue with that. And so uh, we're getting some conflicted information here, what, which, you know, saying that, uh, that, that, you know, children who... That according to that association, children who say fewer than 50 words by 24 months of age is considered a language problem. So are you concerned? I'm going to address this to Robin first and anyone else can jump in too. Uh, examples like that, uh, are you concerned about the lowering of the bar that some guidelines like that represent? And is there a reason for parents to be concerned? Absolutely. We don't want to lower the bar. That's not the, the answer to all of this. Um, I think that 
language development is one of the most critical things that happens in the early years. And the simple concept of serve and return, just like we're doing here, having a conversation, asking a question, building on that, that's one of the most important things to happen in those early years from birth to age three and then on up to age five. So if you do that on a regular basis all day long, as you're brushing your teeth, as you're getting ready for school, as you're going to school, as you're making dinner, then you are going to learn way more words than what anybody wants to put on a list of what's recommended. So what I would encourage parents to do is just continue to focus on having those interactive, open-ended question kind of dialogues. And I mean, most of us as parents, we, you know, with my three girls, it's not like I went around and made a list of how many words, you know, we don't know. We don't look at it in that way. But I think we don't want to take the emphasis off the importance of talking and asking questions and, and developing language skills in those ways. So yeah, no lowering, lowering the standards on any grade is not the answer. I agree um, wholly with Robin, uh, the back and forth talking to children constantly. It comes down to a matter of, of the time and the parents' ability to do so though too, whereas the social support for the parents who uh, can't make, you know, can't make a living wage on one 40 hour a week job that they have to work, you know, multiple jobs, both parents. Um, that is not how things used to be. You used to be able to have one parent working a full-time 40 hour a week job and raise a family that has deteriorated significantly. We have multiple parents sh shift working. One works day, one works evening or night. They have to flip back and forth when the children aren't in school, you know, who's the parent has to rest at some point too. Um, when do they sleep? And uh, that reads to when do I have the energy to feel like I can, you know, uh, interact with my child enough to get them those words. Um, so yeah, lowering, lowering a goal just to make it achievable is, um, is not the answer. We have to, we have to do the wraparound support for families that they can, they can have a living wage um, with one job, um, they can have um, affordable childcare, they can have affordable healthcare, um, they can have affordable education for themselves. So these are not, um, these are not novel ideas that I'm, I'm making up out of the top of my head. There are lots of examples throughout the whole world uh, that they, they have, uh, they, they pay for higher education from, from preschool all the way through uh, university. Uh, they cover healthcare for everyone, other citizens through taxes. Um, they, they have you know, minimum standard of living wages um, that are better than, than ours. Uh, we have to do this as a society. All of these steps are very important and we don't have to reinvent the wheels. They're, they're already invented. We just have to go out there and decide what would be best uh, for our country and citizens so that we can elevate the whole the whole society up uh, along these paths. Um, it's yeah, it's just um, we can do it. We just have to really do it and they do it cheaper than we do here. They, they cover all these things through their taxes and they spend less money on them per person um, overall. I would just add to that. I, I mean, I agree with everything Dr. Lambeth shared. In addition, but it's not all about the parents. It doesn't all fall on the parents. It's all of us as a community. So if your child's in high quality childcare, they're having those interactive conversations all day long. 
So yeah, I mean, there's only so many waking hours when you, if you work a first shift kind of job, but that's what underscores the importance of all these environments where we're putting our young children that they all have to be high quality. Parent can't do it all on their own. I would just take it one step further also and say that sometimes when we look at numbers and we try to quantify standards, um, I'm not so sure that the CDC's thought was ill-willed, right? It was because we have all been affected that the, the benchmark can't be here because we know that no one's up here anymore, you know, for that particular age group. So I, I think to try to justify the world we've been living in and not stigmatize the fact that, oh, we've just got these kids that are so far behind. If we keep saying that to them, they're gonna believe that they're so far behind when really they just lived through a pandemic. That's what they did. And so to Robin's point, if the adults know that this is the standard and there's an asterisk beside the standard for the next couple of years, so that we just know that we have to work to getting everyone back to that, whether it's a third grade reading guarantee or it's an eighth grade math metric, it doesn't matter what the metric is, they're all skewed right now. So don't lower the standard, but let's, let's be intentional about how do we get back to obtaining the standard um, and, and just make sure that we're not marginalizing further students that are the most behind. That's a good point. And, and I wanted to follow up on that. I mean, I, in speaking to people recently, there's a lot of discussion that the good news is kids are resilient, right? I mean, these kids have all suffered trauma, trauma they suffered a setback, but with resources brought to bear, they can uh, bounce back. Uh, and so I wanna talk about what those resources are and what, 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 we, what are we doing and what should we be doing to, to help these kids and, and bring them up. And I know Shannon mentioned, I educate Montgomery County, which sounds like an interesting program, uh, but also Dave mentioned this cliff that might be coming up with all the funding running out. So uh, I'll start with Shannon. Could you talk about what programs exist, local, state, federal resources that can be brought to bear, uh, are being brought to bear or could be brought to bear to help these kids catch up uh, what we are doing and what we should be doing. So I think it's important to reframe how we look at these funds, right? So these funds are not one-time funds, even though they are, but we can't think of them like that. We have to think of them as investment dollars. What can we invest in today that allows us to still do the work differently when that cliff does come to bear, because it is going to come to bear. We get that, Dave is absolutely correct. But if we continually think about, well, we're only, we're only gonna be able to pay more for the next 18 months, because that's the life of the grant. We're only gonna be able to have tutors for the next two years, because that's the life of the grant. We've got to stop that. It's not about what, what are we just doing for the next two months, because we're not catching everybody up, and I'm putting air quotes around that, in the next two years. Uh, the mental health issues alone, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. And again, if we don't have whole healthy humans at every age, we are not gonna be able to cognitively enrich, enhance, or move forward, right? Like the learning will not, it will not continue as we think it should. So we've got to really think about these dollars, these resources that we put into play as investment. So if we need to enhance summer, if we need to rethink a school schedule, if we need to, you know, agrarian calendars is my pet peeve right now. Like why the heck are we on it? I was so excited to hear Congress put in to, you know, play like a daylight savings um, thought. And I was like, oh, can we do this for agrarian calendars for schools? Because we don't need that either. Um, but anyway, 
you know, those are the types of things though that we need to actually like be thinking about like long-term, what can we do with the dollars that we have now that enhances and reform, not just transform, not just, I mean, we've got to do it differently. And if we don't do it right now differently, so yes, there are, there are dollars, but there's also targeted resources that are coming to bear. Um, we know that we've got to do better with literacy, even pre-pandemic. That was kind of on the, the board pre-pandemic. So it just needs to be fine-tuned and targeted. We have to have adults that are trained in certain, um, certain skill sets. We've got to make sure that we don't lose sight that just playing as a child <laughs> and adults allowing students to play, if we get super hyper-focused on just the academics, the academics, the academics, we're just gonna exacerbate the whole human issue, the mental health issue that we have. So there's a lot of things we can leverage as long as we don't lose sight of, we are the, gonna be the architects of what it looks like in the future and we need to do it right now. And we need to keep that whole human in perspective. Thank you so much, Shannon. Uh, did anyone else want to chime in on the resources aspect there that was asked? Dave, did you want to answer? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think this is a very difficult um, question for us to, to, to puzzle through. Um, there are, uh, you know, there are a number of resources. I think Shannon is hitting on a few, you know, key philosophical shifts that are very difficult. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not contradicting, contradicting you, Shannon, but I think it's really important that we pull back and think about for so many educators, you know, you're in the middle of a crisis, you're struggling to make it through the day, but then you also simultaneously have to be thinking about how could it look dramatically different in the future. And for so many people, the bandwidth issues that come up around that are, you know, are astounding. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think, you know, in addition to, the, you know, I, I, the calendar thing, I'm right there with Shannon. I think we need to be thinking very differently about how school looks. Um, I think we need to uh, I think we need to be thinking differently about how we use technology. I think, you know, one of the lessons that can be a danger coming out of the pandemic is becoming too enamored with technology and believing that technology can replace a lot of the things that actually work well in schools. So I think we should be very careful about that. And, and I, I think we need to be, one of the things that we can use now is those dollars to invest in, in training educators to think differently about how to instruct better. Um, and so there's lots of opportunities for us to standardize and to think about what are best practices across the country around the world that we can be you know, stealing and using back home. And now we have the resources to actually take the time to do that. So, so the, it's, it's there. I, I, the caveat that I'm constantly coming back to is we have a massive bandwidth problem right now in education where, you know, and you can't buy yourself, you can't, can't buy your way out of those problems. And if we try to, we're going to burn a lot of our folks out. I will, I will say, and here's a couple tactical examples that we've seen just over the last couple of weekends. Um, we're, we've got sub issues, right? So we've got substitute teacher shortages. So we know we need to give current teachers, again, they have to be professionally developed. We have to take care of them. We have to make sure that we're checking in on them, having those questions, because you know, the same goes for their brains as the little guys, right? They have to have a cortex that's open for business in order to, to take in even their own professional development. So we've, we've really kind of, there's a tension there between trying not to push them over the edge, not break them, but also give them what they need because we only have 24 hours in a day, right? So regardless of the monetary resources, the time is still pretty, pretty constant. <laughs> there's only 24 hours. 
But over the last two weekends, we have brought teachers into a training that did use virtual reality. And again, not to be too enamored with technology, I agree with Dave there, but it was something different for them. It was a different way to teach. It was a different way to reskill them and even upskill them. These were particularly math teachers in junior high and high school grade levels. I watched these teachers. I heard stories from the, you know, the other supervisors in the other areas of the state. We watched teachers wholeheartedly give up their Friday evening and come early on Saturday, no question asked, no pay increase, because they were being fed. Their pedagogical souls were being enriched. And they haven't been that happy, according to them, these are their own testimonies, they haven't been that happy in the last two years. And they felt like they were finally getting back to that same feeling from when they woke up in third grade and said, I wanna be a teacher. So there is this fine balance of making certain that we feed humans the things that are gonna replenish their souls, if you will, um, and allow them to do the great work that they were in some cases called or born to do. So we have to just keep trying new things, but we can't just check a box and say, well, they're tired, so that won't work, or they're, they're, we're gonna break them. We need to talk to them. We need to have conversations with them and make certain that we're listening to the things that they are saying. I want to follow up on something that Shannon had said about supporting the whole child, um, about what about supporting the whole family? I mean, just like a lot has been asked of teachers, a lot has been asked of parents, uh, and they've been working from home while taking care of kids, and, and they're stressed about trying to help these children at the same time. So how can we support families? How can we support parents as they're partnering with educators and everyone else to try to help these kids? <laughs> Uh, Dr. Lambus, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so the, again, these are these are big ongoing issues that were were here long before the pandemic. Um, uh, we need to, you know, support legislation that supports the whole family from from wages to affordable housing to healthcare, affordable higher education. Uh, and all these things, um, you know, I, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I try to direct parents towards uh, Preschool Promise. <laughs> I'm a big uh, advertiser of Preschool Promise. My child is a, one of my children is a graduate of, one of the first graduates of Preschool Promise. It was amazing. Um, uh, you know, I encourage them to utilize the li public libraries um, as far as supporting their children goes. You know, the libraries not just, I mean, they can help them look for jobs, as the parent and help them learn technology themselves to help their children. Um, but get your child a library card, um, get them books, read to them when you can, um, have them reading at home. Um, you know, those are those are the little things that you can do immediately and that I encourage parents to continue doing. Um, taking those mental health breaks to, to get out of the house, to do things that are fun together when possible. Um, but so much is, is, is you know, things that are a, unfortunately um, for the privileged to be able to take that time and do those things. And uh, so many of the patients that I see and, and their parents and so forth, they don't have that privilege of leisure, anything. Um, every day is working six days a week. I write notes for patients so they can take bathroom breaks that are of a reasonable duration and number per day that that, that is where we have we have gotten to in this world with our our work system that you know they don't have the mental bandwidth when they come home to deal with their children because they've been worked 
working, you know, uh, just to deterioration and having to apply for disability by the time they're 50. So these are just such big questions. It's, it's hard to say that there's, you know, one or two or three things that we can do to immediately make an impact, but, you know, just those little everyday things, trying to encourage it, um, resources that, uh, through OEA and, and preschool promise and what the, whatever the schools can do, um, but they can't fix all of these big problems either. The other thing that strikes me is our employers have a really important role to play in how we support the whole family, because we know working parent two thirds at least of parents with young children are in the workforce. So many of your employees have parents and our policies around parental leave need serious attention. Um, our, how we handle sick days, how we handle the realities of, of the pandemic. And you know now people are taking vacation days. There was a little time when you had COVID days. And it's a challenge because Dave and, and Shannon, they know very well, you've got to staff your classroom. But I would say even in education, we have a long way to go in how we handle our policies for working parents. And it's really tricky because we don't have enough people to staff classrooms to begin with. So it's hard to think about being even more flexible. And yet I would also say until we're more flexible, we're not going to attract and retain working parents as employees and teachers. So I do think the policies we all create, those of us in leadership and uh, have that ability, that's really, really critically important. And again, we tend to be behind. You know, We look north to Canada and some of their parental leaves. We look to Europe. There are a lot of different policies that other countries have prioritized that we can learn from. Thank you, Robin. We are running out of time very quickly. I'm going to leave it with one question. Uh, anyone can chime in here. I'm going to start with David, though. Um, can you think of specific examples of programs or initiatives in our area, could be your own, could be some you've experienced, uh, that have been knocking it out of the park in terms of being proactive in addressing the needs of children during the pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, this is a, you know, this is a, is a tough one because so many things are, are, are jumbled and, and, and difficult right during this time. I would I would point to, you know, at our school, we're, we're doing high dosage tutoring. Um, this is a, an initiative that we're really proud of. It certainly isn't perfect. Uh, but when you talk about getting kids high quality time, um, you know, focusing on phonics instruction for our youngest learners where they've struggled all along, uh, that's a huge thing. And then something that's upcoming I'm really excited about for our city is we're bringing freedom schools back. Um, and so, you know, we've gone a few years without freedom schools. If you're unaware, it's a uh, summer opportunity for students. Um, uh, it's and really it's um, an opportunity for kids to be in school, uh, getting getting uh, a lot of literacy instruction, but doing it from, you know, doing it mostly with with college students. Uh, it has has a very camp uh, strong camp feel. It is um, one of the things I know kids look forward to and we can't wait to get it back here in the city. I want to say I've been really pleased with how uh, Dayton Public um, has been handling the pandemic um, with all the challenges they already face. Um, uh, we've been, I have a child in Dayton Public and they have reached out to parents um, frequently, constantly. They're, they're thinking really outside the box in terms of trying to get uh, kids back in the classroom in person, incentivizations to do this uh, as much as possible to get attendance up, to um, reward grades um, and, and, and help 
parents figure out how to do transportation and things like that, especially with bus driver shortages uh, and the like. Uh, meals they've been dealing with when kids cannot be in school. Um, I think they've been doing a tremendous job um, overall. Um, programs like um, I think Green County Libraries also has uh, early reading programs, um, uh, sending books out to kids. Uh, on a certain regular basis. Um, and I think, you know, in preschool promise, uh, that would be my, my top ones that I know I've seen that have been doing a, a over the top job to try and keep kids on track during all this. I would just add two very quick things. We have a integrated social emotional language arts uh, curriculum that we've been using in the K-6 uh, classrooms pre-pandemic. And we saw that the kids who were using it pre-pandemic actually did better. They used their mindfulness techniques and used some of the, the things that they learn. Uh, we partner with singer-songwriter Jewel on that project. And so it's it's been it's been really good to see it in usage during the pandemic as well, but it's going to be even more important afterwards. Um, and then the other the other piece is I think you know we got really used to if we think back to March of 2020 and that summer of 2020, there was a whole lot of outdoor play because we weren't going other places. So to Dr. Lambus's point earlier, it's not just for the privilege to go on vacation. Any, we have an amazing Metro Park system in this region. Uh, please take advantage of using outdoors as a good natural, like self-induced therapy to, <laughs> to just you know, be able to take that deep breath in. So as the spring is approaching and we're, we do have more daylight hours, um, I would say just continue to take advantage of the parks and the system that we have been so blessed with here in the Dayton region. Thank you, Shannon. And we are out of time now. So thank you, everybody. Thank you to our panel uh, for all the expertise and the guidance you provided today. I, I think we answered a lot of different questions and we got through a lot today. So thank you all for your time. Thank you to uh, the audience for, for listening and, and asking questions along. Um, I, I'm again, Nick Herkman, the Community Impact Editor with the Dayton Daily News. This is a community conversation on the topic of how COVID and the pandemic has affected children's development. Uh, thank you for your time, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. You can read a shortened transcript of this conversation on DaytonDailyNews.com ideas voices. I'm your host, Nick Herkman. Join me next time as we talk to community leaders on topics important to the Dayton region.